Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It's December 1992, Christmas time. I'm 10 years old and writing furiously into the pages of my little pink diary, venting about dinner. Dear diary, today grandma gave us tamales for dinner. They smelled so good. Why does she always do this to me? Doesn't she understand that I'm the fattest girl in my entire school? And it's because she's always tempting me with food? Love always, XOXO, me. In the Mexican household I grew up in, December was high tamale season. We'd make them for family and give them away as gifts too. And they were legendary. My grandmother and grandfather used to sit down in a mini production line and make dozens of tamales. Each one is like a tiny present of spicy meat and earthy masa wrapped in papery corn husks. My mouth is watering just thinking about them now. But back then, tamales were the bane of my existence. I was a little fat girl who was being bullied relentlessly for her weight, and food was enemy number one. The better it tasted, the more dangerous it was. A threat to becoming different, better, thin. If I could just be thin, I thought I'd be happy. I'd get the love and attention I always craved from the boys at school. I thought being fat meant ugliness. A loveless future. Those delicious tamales meant staying fat, failing, failing at being thin and failing at all the other things that seemed to be wrong with me. Like the Mexican home that made me feel like I was an alien at school. The words I would mispronounce because my grandmother said them differently. The rituals that kept us from being real Americans. My feelings about those tamales were all about my relationship to culture, family, tradition, immigration, and race. Food is powerful that way. I'm Virgie Tovar, and this is Rebel Eaters Club. It's a show where I talk to incredible people about our relationships to food and all the things wrapped up in eating, like self-esteem, sex, community, 
love. I am a fat woman of color, and I hated my body for a long time. I was terrified of food for nearly 20 years. But finally, one day, I gave the finger to diet culture. But what is diet culture? In the U.S., the weight loss industry has grown to $72 billion a year. That's $72 billion. This culture is constantly telling us that all our problems would be solved if only we ate less. Diet culture shows up in workout clothing companies that tell you to find your shine, in keto cookbooks on the bestseller list, in the way coworkers can't seem to share a meal without talking about the gym, the way fat people are treated like second-class citizens. Every year, 48 million Americans go on a diet, but not everyone is calling it a diet. People might call it wellness or a healthy lifestyle, but diet culture is everywhere and it's destructive. So we're going to break up with diet culture, one corn dog at a time, and you will salivate and have feelings and new thoughts. At the end of every episode, there will be a question I want you to journal about. The more you know about your history with food and eating, the better equipped you are to finally break up with diet culture. Are you ready? Today, we're going to talk to my friend Mia Foyer about her food frenemy, bagels. I brought some bagels and some schmear. Is it schmear? How do you say it? Well... I have never heard anyone call it schmear until I moved to the U.S. But in Winnipeg, where I grew up, where yeah. I, I ate my earliest bagel, it was just cream cheese. Okay, nice. For Mia, bagels are all tied up with some of her most important relationships with her mother, her heritage, and herself. Okay, okay, okay. So are we ready? Should we do? Oh, my God. I just dropped a bunch of cream cheese on my lap. It's fine. I'm just going to eat it off. Yeah. Are you ready? Uh-huh. Okay. Do it. Let's do it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Although, I gotta say, I long for a toaster. Yeah. I met Mia when she came to Babe Camp, one of my weekend-long workshops on fat feminism. Since then, she's become a friend. She's a Canadian and a total badass sculptor. When we sat down in the studio to eat some bagels, she started telling me about her childhood in Winnipeg, Manitoba. So I grew up in a, a Jewish house, mm-hmm. Jewish grandparents. I went to a Jewish school. And so I was really kind of steeped in a Jewish community. And with that came a lot of Jewish cooking, like a lot of things like knishes and balinces and corned beef sandwiches and pickles and bagels, you know, and brisket and chicken soup and matzo balls. And bagels were glorious. And the ones that my my mom bought at Safeway in Winnipeg were not fancy. They were not these like beautiful bagels that I, I've, I've, you know, had in Montreal or in New York. Yeah, they were like out of a plastic bag that you know were made in a factory. Yeah, that came and frozen on a truck. <laughs> you know, they were the industrialized bagel <laughs> yes. for the middle class uh, family who lived in like the middle of Canada. <laughs> and um, I remember lying in bed and I would think like, 
oh, I am, I cannot wait to wake up and eat a toasted bagel with cheese whiz. That was like the ultimate. That was like my fantasy. I would go to bed. I was so excited to wake up and have breakfast. (laughs) And then because of the fact that my family is full of uh, larger bodied people, men and women, um, I learned how to hate my body from my mother who hated her body. And then I hated her body. And I hated my body and I hated my cousin's bodies and my aunt's bodies. But my dad became almost like this cop around the house. Mm. And he put a picture on our fridge. I don't know if you remember, Virgie, but like there was these birthday cards that came out in the 80s of fat women or like super fat women in bikinis holding a cupcake. And then it was meant to be funny you know, mm-hmm. but it was hurtful. It was so he put one of those on our fridge as like a reminder to everybody in the house, me, my brother and my mother, that, you know, if you open up this door, just remember this body right here could be you. Mm. He would tell me that I had to do like X number of minutes on the stair climber every night. Like There was so much fear being hurled at me. As I was just sort of approaching puberty, Mm. I wasn't even like 13 yet. Not soon after that, I actually remember sort of telling myself that I should not be so excited about eating bagels because of the fact that like I was receiving very strong messages around food, around eating. I mean, that's the thing, right? Because there's so much weird, there's morality tied Mm -hmm. into all of it. Yeah. And I think when you're talking about when food stops being something that you enjoy or something that you use for nutrition, right? Like any number, there's a range of reasons why humans and animals eat, right? Yeah. And I would say all of them are natural. But then you add this cultural level where food becomes tied to morality in our culture. Yeah. And also our relationship to food culturally is very seated in anxiety. Yeah. And I think most people think that most food is either dangerous or bad for you. Yeah. And so when you have that moral overlay, all of a sudden you start to see really strange behavior. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I just feel like that, like I witness so much of that on a day-to-day basis, right? Like there's this kind of understanding of what you're supposed to do when someone else is watching and what you want yeah. to do. Oh, <laughs> you know? I, I feel like I have been in so many situations where I am performing – if I'm at an art opening and there's like a big table full of delicious food, but I'm surrounded by colleagues and other people from in the art world, you know, mm. forget it. I'm just going to nibble at the smallest thing possible. Why? Even if I'm hungry, because I all of a sudden fall into this weird trap of feeling scrutinized by everyone around me. And that scrutiny is somehow linked to what I'm eating. Yes. And also, I mean, how many dates have I been on in my lifetime where I'm ordering food across the table from somebody who... I think is judging me based on how much I eat or what I order. I'm happy to say that I've sort of shaken a lot of that bullshit off. But in my life, it's been a constant. And then another thing I was thinking of back to the bagels is um, so my mother and the women of my family go Mm. to Weight Watchers. This is something that has been a constant You know, since I could remember, my mother has been going to Weight Watchers until she started bringing me with her to Weight Watchers. And then I went on my own to Weight Watchers as soon as I was old enough. But they would make bagels. 
They wow. would be like, I remember every once in a while in my household growing up, the bagel brand would shift to be like two point bagels from Weight Watchers. Wow. And they were sort of disgusting and they were smaller, but you still kind of got to saw them in half and put them in the toaster and they, they became toasty. And then my mother uh, at one point found a recipe to make one-point bagels that were, like, <laughs> made out of, uh, oh, God, there was, like, fat-free yogurt and who knows. <laughs> that was, like, the ultimate, like, they're only one point. Weight Watchers, you know? <laughs> and and as I got older, I, you know, and I moved out and I moved out of Canada and I went to grad school, I, I felt like I was deep, deep, deeply struggling in terms of what I was allowing myself to eat. What I ended up falling into at that point was no bagels, ever. Um, I had loved them once so much, and I knew it, and I, I just felt like if I if I eat a bagel, it's over. Don't ever order a bagel. Don't ever eat a bagel. Just don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. For years. Whoa. I, I know. Mean, I'm, I'm having like a recollection of something my mother taught me mm-hmm. when I was a fat little girl who was getting, you know, emotionally abused and bludgeoned day after day for being fat. You know, I remember we were sitting in her car and I was crying and I just felt like I was so disgusted by my body. I remember taking her hand and putting it on the inside of my thigh and making her feel the stretch marks and Mm -hmm. telling her that there was something wrong with me. There was something that normal people don't have this, that, you know, my life would be better if I was the kind of person who didn't have, you know, like it was such a physical um, memory of like, look at my defect, feel it, like Mm -hmm. feel what it looks like to see, to feel the, like the the little tear under the skin where the stretch mark happens, you know? Um, And, you know, I think that she felt really overwhelmed and unable to guide me in that moment. Yeah. Um, And so she leaned on her own dieting and disordered eating, cache of of information and tips or whatever. And she said that the key to becoming thin was learning to hate the foods you loved the most. Whoa. And and like that kind of I mean, that reminds me so much of what you're talking about, where it's like that inversion where it's like where the thing you love the most is the biggest danger to who you can and should become. Yeah. But that's what I mean, that's yeah. what yeah, it's yeah, like. Yeah. That's also part like her teaching me how to have a eating disorder yeah. was part of feminine intimacy in our culture. Right. Right. right it right, wasn't right. like somehow like, oh, this beautiful moment of like feminine intimacy yeah. where a mother is passing something onto it. It yeah. was like all that awful diet culture shit yeah. is as much a part of gender as like my mother touching my body. You know what I'm saying? As, yeah. It's like it's all connected. Right? I, I, I completely agree. Well, it's like it's interesting, right? Because like there's this cultural mechanism. The family is attempting to use food the way that humans use food, which is to celebrate, to create intimacy, to feed and nurture. And then there's this weird moralistic diet culture Mm -hmm. thing that's kind of stepping in. Mm -hmm. And and it's just it's like interesting, right? Because I see the trajectory of family and how food is always central to that. Mm -hmm. And then there's this weird thing that kind of interrupts. Yeah. Um, 
another story that feels really resonant with um, what you're talking about with your family and your mother is like, I remember, you know, distinctly writing in my diary um, these like hate letters to my grandmother Mm -hmm. um, because I was so angry at her for making delicious food that I felt tempted me that I felt, you know, like if, if she could just stop making this food that I could be the right size. Yeah. And I think what's so um, interlaced with that and what's so intense about that is that, you know, my grandmother, my family is Mexican, right? Like my family. So like, you know, I'm, I'm learning that this particular kind of like Anglo streamlined Norwegian body is the ideal body. Yeah. And I'm seeing my, Mexican grandmother who's making the food that I'm connecting with home, but also connecting with my racialization as evil. Me too, Virgie. Me too. I, the bagel, there was something so Jewish about it. Mm. And I not only hated my body, but I hated my Jewish body. Um, This is not something that I have fully resolved. You know, the bagel for me, like... It, it was it was like the perfect food to hate, mm. you know. It wasn't just like chocolate, or it wasn't just like ice cream. This right, like right. food that like everyone loves, and then you know, every, who people are on a diet are like, no, you know. The <laughs> bagel was like, it it symbolized my cultural background as a Jew, and how at odds I was with that. Totally. Yeah. I don't um, know if that makes sense. Yes, but, of yeah. course it does. Yeah. Of course. I mean, <laughs> yes. I mean, I'm wondering, like, you know, you kind of mentioned when we were first talking about it, you're kind of returned to the bagel yeah. during pregnancy. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I kind of wanted to hear this story. Yeah. I got pregnant in 2015 and there were just some foods I did not want. Right. You know, I and there were some foods where, you know, the cravings just really took over. And it was I mean, all I wanted was a fucking bagel. Mm. All I wanted was a fucking bagel like and it was a plain bagel, no seeds, no flavor with plain cream cheese. It's all I wanted, motherfucker. Like, just <laughs> give me <laughs> just bring it to me. And, uh, you know. Something kind of animal happens when you're pregnant. You start mm. to smell more and you sense more and you're, you know, you're like, hey, you know, like <laughs> you can't really see what I'm doing, but I'm pretending to be a little animal sniffing around through garbage looking for that perfect treat. And like, that's kind of how what I was becoming. And um, when I wanted a bagel, which was kind of all I wanted, um, I, you know, I, I made sure I got one. And did it create like static for you that that intense craving every time, every Mm. time, every time, because I I still was like, I can't believe I'm eating a bagel. Mia, do you understand your body is going to do all this crazy shit and you're probably going to gain all this weight and you're the world's going to end and you're going to have a child and you're going to, you know, but I, you know, the bagel, the bagel was eaten. Yes, because it was all like I, I couldn't. I didn't want anything else. Totally. And even during my birth, I, I just remember this moment while I was giving birth. I had my son Galileo in my in my house, in my own bed. And I was pushing and I was it was like screaming and, and it was like I was 
I was an animal and I was trying to bite my doula in her face and, you know, and then and it was storming outside and it was, you know, like four in the morning. And I remember my partner said, he's like, Mia, you look so beautiful right now. And I just was like, shut the fuck up. I'm so fat. Why are you even telling me this right now? Like I was because I, I was so deeply invested in the fact that I was I, I, I like my body was wrong that. Even in that moment when my body was doing like the most magical thing it's ever done and I even had somebody right there rooting me on and I just couldn't even shake diet culture in that moment. And then when I think back to that, how depressing. What what a shame that like I have to have that memory poisoning my my experience. I mean, I'll forever look back on that. You know, I chose to have a home birth so I could be really present and yet... I was not present. I was still having thoughts that I needed to be skinny in that moment. I mean, how ridiculous is that? Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com/now. We are back. A couple years after Mia gave birth, she came to babe camp. That's the workshop I do with women where we get free from the lies we're told about our bodies. Remember, Mia's an artist. She takes found industrial materials and makes huge, human-sized sculptures. Not long after babe camp, she was asked to do an installation in a decommissioned greenhouse in the L.A. Arboretum. This greenhouse is kind of like this derelict little shitbox. Um, it's been vacant for decades. It is like this ruinous structure that's made of wood and glass, and it's kind of fucked up. It's gnarly, like the glass is kind of smashed out in parts, and um, spent some time in this greenhouse and also thought about kind of the journey that I've been on um, 
in my own body, getting pregnant, letting go of diet culture, you know, really um, sort of reprioritizing the, th- the, the things that I was going to put my energy into, mm. which was not shrinking myself. Like it just it was it was like glaring. It was a glaring problem for me to wake up in the morning and 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 say, well what was I gonna do today? Am I gonna go to the gym and then spend the rest of the day worrying about what I was gonna not eat or mm. you know, or was I just gonna go to my fucking studio? There was nothing about shrinking my body that felt remotely important felt like anything I needed to bother with mm. it felt like something that was if anything working against me it was totally. working it was, yeah it was like actually actively working against me and as soon as that shit started to melt away I was thinking I want to make some kind of I want to make this like celebratory body of work pun intended yes. and I wanted to use my own body I wanted to use the bodies of brilliant women who, around me um, I was moved to create an installation in that greenhouse of these fictional goddess figures one of them was the Egyptian goddess Tawaret who has the the head of a hippo and the body of a, of a woman. And her and her sisters were referred to as the solar mothers. And what their role was, was to uh, protect birthing mothers and newborns of all species um, during the birthing process. Uh, and, and also to usher the sun over uh, being born over the horizon every morning. Okay, so I had an opportunity to take all my clothes off and be cast by you. It was such a specific experience. It was like, you know, like I'd never been cast before. And um, and there's some logistics to it. Like, for instance, you had to put Vaseline all over my vagina and then put a tiny piece of saran wrap over it. <laughs> and it was like you were so consent driven. You were like, is this OK? I'm going to put this. And you, I think you even had like a joint dangling out of your mouth at this point <laughs> or something. And you're like, is this OK? Is this OK? Oh, my God. <laughs> So evocative. I, know. I always envision you with a joint hanging out of your yeah. mouth. It's it's I mean, that's not a judgment. It's actually very charming. Oh, I'm so I'm so thankful. <laughs> I'm so thankful to weed. So it's like I got cast and then I like started to panic and you had to cut me out. You and like your assistant had to cut me out of it. And you gave me some weed and then I started to freak out. I and, and I was like, I've never been higher in my life. And you're like, you are not that hot. Like you held it down that moment. Like it was like the moment when the airplane was like crashing and you're like, we're going to be OK. <laughs> yeah. So powerful. Oh boy. And I felt OK after that. I felt like. I felt like that you were just so emphatic and I felt like I could trust you in that moment. I just want to tell you about the first time I saw Mia's show, once it all came together. Mia had invited the group of fat babes she had cast for the sculptures to be VIP guests. After the wine and cheese reception, we walked the windy path of the LA Arboretum to the greenhouse. And what we saw there was like something out of a science fiction fairy tale. Through the windows, I saw these incredible sculptures that had the heads of hippos, the tails of dinosaurs, and human bodies. Our bodies. 
I saw our bellies, our double chins and thigh rolls illuminated under the gallery lighting as if we were demigods. It was like a museum of witchy hippos crossed with a forgotten corner of Jurassic Park, and it was amazing. I I mean, I, I do believe that this is the most exciting work I've ever made. Yeah. And it's only just sort of like the beginning of the most exciting work that I've ever made because I all it did was just make me want to make better and more and crazier. And, you know, like I, I, I just want to kind of keep writing it. I mean, one of the things I love about this work is that, I mean, first of all, there's there's like the documentation of bodies that have largely been either completely deleted from the archive of Western art uh-huh. <laughs> or are only portrayed to display sin or gluttony or, you know, something something kind of a deviation yeah. um, or a sign of immorality. I mean, in general, I don't see fat women's bodies being revered and loved. Um, And I think there's also what I love is because of the nudity, there's like a documentation of the physicality of fatness that is so unique. Anyway, that actually, that's the last question I wanted to ask you was, you know, I know you're still on the journey, but you're kind of on the other side of the line, right? Like I just found out recently that 48 million Americans diet every year. Yeah. And so what is your dispatch. What do you know now that you didn't know when you were part of that statistic? Yeah, I would say that to walk through that, you know, that that threshold or whatever of like being on a diet and committing to this like bullshit sort of like living in the future, aspirational gobbledygook. Yes. To consider leaving it could only be like, well, then what happens to me? That is scary. But then I feel like once the door was even cracked a little bit open, you can't close it. Yeah. Because it's searing bullshit that you (laughs) realize you were in. Like just as soon as there's like a little inch of light going through, it's like, well. You see all the poop garbage. The light coming (laughs) in illuminates it. Yes. Yes. We're like, well, okay, wait a second here. And 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 the other the other thing is the parenting question. Yes. Because I I feel really fortunate, too, to have sort of discovered this radical way of, of living yes. in our culture, which is like without having a priority to shrink myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so grateful that it kind of happened when it did as I had been, you know, just becoming a parent because there are so many things that I am seeing other parents around me do that are setting their children up for the exact same mm. sad, painful relationships. I see it just with the way parents talk about their own bodies. Right. I never, ever, ever want there to be any shame around eating, around eating bagels, around bodies, around bodies in bathing suits, around jiggling, around tickling, around, you know, like, like, like anything that's kind of associated with like bodies and how bodies are funny and how bodies are hairy and smelly. And I just I'm trying to protect Galileo as much as I can from how the culture sterilizes and creates so much shame. Mia, mm-hmm. thank you for being here, for eating bagels that were not toasted, <laughs> and for sharing your beautiful story. Thank you. <laughs> e 
Eating is a basic need. We have to eat. We rely on food for survival every day, all the time. Our bodies are built to enjoy eating. It's a basic biological source of pleasure. Beyond that, food connects us to other people and to ourselves. It's part of our greatest moments of celebration, joy, and mourning. And for better or worse, it's tied to all the things that anchor us to the place we're from, to the people many of us will never be closer to, our family. My relationship with my family is complex, but now tamales remind me of the warm parts of our relationship, not the hurtful ones. I know my grandma was caring for me with her tamales. She was never trying to tempt or torture me. She was only interested in nourishing me. Nowadays, tamales are a big chunk of my food pyramid. I don't hate my body or food anymore, so they don't represent danger. Instead, they represent a small, delicious part of a very fraught inheritance. Every week at the end of the episode, I'm going to share a journal prompt that will help you think about your relationship to food. This week, I want you to think about one of your food inheritances. Write about food that reminds you of family, chosen or biological, it doesn't matter. What does this dish represent to you? What's its story? The joy, the tension, where it came from, the good memories and the weird ones, and how it shaped who you have become. If you want to write it down, you can send it to us at rebeleatersclub at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 862-231-5386 and your story could make it onto the show. 862-231-5386. When you're done, don't forget to give yourself the merit badge you earned, the All Food is Good Food badge. You can find the merit badges at rebeleatersclub.com. Just download the club starter pack. Once you have your merit badge, show me where you're putting it. Post on Instagram or Twitter with the hashtag rebeleatersclub, all one word, or tag us at transmitterpods. You can also find the merit badges on Giphy so you can share the Rebel Eaters Club love all around the internet. And join me next week. We're talking to my friend Bailey about recovering from an eating disorder and learning about self-love. Like, fuck accepting yourself. I love myself. Rebel Eaters Club is an original podcast from Transmitter Media, the podcast company that's like the last cream puff on the dessert tray. I'm Virgie Tovar. The show is produced by Lacey Roberts and Jordan Bailey with help from James T. Green and Alex Sujong Laughlin. Our editor is Sarah Nix. Greta Cohen is our executive producer. Our show art is by Lucila Perini. Like what you hear on the show and want to sponsor us? Visit us via lipstickandvinyl.com and let us know. And please head to your favorite podcast app and give us a review. It will help us grow the club. See you next week. Thank you.